We don't know. We can't know what combat feels like, what returning home with life-changing wounds feels like, unless we've been through that. And only about 1% of Americans have seen war up close. But my guest has. Bob Woodruff is an ABC News correspondent. He was embedded with forces in Iraq when a roadside bomb almost took his life and certainly altered his path and his purpose and his family's. My little, my little daughter, Nora, I've got twin adorable little girls and they were five years old when I was hit and about, you know, six months after I came back, still had all of these, you know, wounds all over my body and I couldn't remember a lot of things. Um, and she, my daughter asked me, uh, she asked, she was talking to my wife, Lee, and she says, mom, you know, uh, dad's head seems to have that because they cut off part of my skull. He's, you've got that dented head. And mom says, don't worry, that's, they're going to put that skull back on. It'll be fun. And mom, he's got all of these scars all over his back. Don't worry, sweet, that'll get better. And my dad's got all these little pieces of metal and rocks you know, in, in, implanted in the left part of his jaw. And she, she says, don't worry, those popping out one at a time, that's going to be fine. And she said, you know, mom, no, the, I think my Dad loves me even more than he did before. Now, whether that was an expression of it, um, maybe it indicated something. I felt so lucky to be alive. The tank Bob was riding in was hit by that IED in early 2006, just a month after he earned the coveted co-anchor chair on ABC World News Tonight. He's still doing great work for ABC News, but his injuries created another life mission giving aid and hope to wounded veterans, service members, and their families through the Bob Woodruff Foundation. We talked about what's needed now and what we can do to support them. What they really want is they want a job. You know, they want to have their life better and not just somebody shouting out and say, you know, you served, thank you so much, but I'm not going to do anything more than that. And I'm not going to do anything else to help you. Uh, The big thing is not just to say or to show how much you love them. It's really more about doing something, you know, behind the curtain to do something for them. Bob believes recognizing and trusting in the potential of veterans to use their skills and experiences and do great things goes so far. Marine veteran Keontae's story in the companion episode of this one said his post-combat turning point was one person believing in him. And he took it from there. There's a lot to take away from this conversation with Bob Woodruff. It was great reconnecting five years after learning so much from him, covering the Invictus Games together in 2016. Bob, thanks for joining us. It's nice to reconnect with you. I I loved our brief time working together at the Invictus Games, and I appreciate your time and your wisdom and your expertise on this. Yeah, Chris, it's great to see you again, or listen to you again. I don't know if it depends if it's audio or video. (laughs) Both. Uh, But I think that shedding light on the issues that we're going to get into is important. So let's start with this. You, you were a war correspondent for about a decade. You saw up close the Iraq conflict. You've had other experiences with, with people in combat. What is not understood or appreciated enough by those of us that have not had that experience about the nature of those kinds of conflicts? You know, it's, it's interesting that, yes, if you go and you embed with the military out in a, in a war zone, you get very close to them. Um, but it's not just the people of America that don't have the chance to go and, and experience this and get to get to know them 
you know, there in the war zones, it's interesting in our country that we have very little contact with the military. Us, those of us on the civilian world, it's well below 1% of Americans, you know, serve in the military. So you don't get a chance to really get to know them very well unless you have the opportun- opportunity to do so, whether you're visiting a base or if you happen to be you know, alongside them when they're when they're engaged in war. So it's 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 really different than it, than it was historically when you look back when we're young. You know, you and I were growing up in the as as young teenagers. You know, in the, the time of the Vietnam War, where people got in contact with them, World War II. Korean War, even the numbers are very high percentage-wise, but now it's just so small on a voluntary military that we just don't have that much of a relationship with uh, those in the uh, in the forces. We hear about wars, but I think our understanding is of war at a thirty thousand foot level. We have a general idea that many thousands are involved, a bunch of money's involved. We have a vague idea about what the overall mission is, as it's expressed to us, but the day to day, what it's like what their experiences, those of the, the personnel that are fighting these wars, no understanding at all. You got a chance to see that up close. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, though, Chris, that the, we have more coverage of the when the when the wars were peaking in Iraq and Afghanistan because we had so much embedding. We had the chance to broadcast more, put it out on radio and really get a sense of what it was like to be engaged compared to certainly compared you know, to some of the more, you know, religion, uh, more uh, wars that were not long behind before this, you know, so we had a chance to be there, a lot of people covering it, but you know, it's, it's different. The, the world and they, you know, the, the personality when you're actually fighting out there is different than what you're like when you come back and you engage and you, you, the military goes back into, you know, the veterans go back into the civilian world. It's uh you know, it's just, it's a different world. It's an isolation. You know, they just don't get the chance to get any attention or coverage when they're back and they're not fighting out there in the fields and on the sand. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's some, so much that America needs to learn more about the lives of those veterans, not so much really when they're in the, in the, in the war, but when they come back and they're living a, no- a normal, ordinary life like the rest of us. And that's exactly what I want to talk about today, because the military civilian component of this is is enormous. The the mindset of those who do the fighting, what is not well understood about that? I mean, it's 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 a broad question, I know. But for those of us that have not been in combat, not seen what they do, not seen what they're returning from and have no understanding about why the adjustment is so difficult, um, Take, take us inside an armored vehicle and inside the heads of those guys as best you can. You know, I, am, I embedded twice. I came in the invasion of Iraq back in 2003 with the, uh, with the Marines, first LAR. And then the second time I embedded was when I was hit, which was with the Army, uh, with the 4th Infantry back in 2006 in January, which is when we were hit. You know, on that one, I, I only and the first time I embedded, I was there for for months with them, uh, preparing for the invasion and then after the invasion. And this time I had actually come in in uh, about five days before we were ultimately hit and, and wounded. I was only really with them for about five days. And that was uh, experience not inside a tank most of the time, but we were 
going village to village to try to learn more about what the Iraqis needed and wanted so we could ultimately, the U.S. could ultimately hand the power over and the responsibility over to the Iraqi military. So we were out there with both, both, both the U.S. forces and the Iraqi forces. So I, the life in there was very short-lived. The, the, in the first LAR, in the vehicle on the way into the invasion, that was one where we learned we learned how to eat the boxes of food. We, we learned how to, uh, you know, let's go to the bathroom, you know, on the sand in all sorts of ways. You know, we just couldn't get out of the vehicle for 11 hours at a time just because we didn't want to be exposed to possible explosions, IED, you know, improvised uh, explosive devices. So we were, had to be somewhat cautious about that. So it was two very different experiences for me. Uh, going in with the Marines, then going out with the Army. The experience when you're hit, you're in an Iraqi tank. As you've told it, you you poke your head out of the top of the vehicle to do a stand-up, which is on camera, because the audio wasn't great the first time. And then, boom, um, everything about your life and the course sort of changes in an instant there. Yeah, you know, I have some regrets about it. I mean, that's, that's absolutely the case. Uh, people ask me, do you have advice that, if there was a, an explosion or the possibility of an explosion and you were out there in the sand, I said, well, make sure you duck after it hits <laughs> because it was, I was hit very badly on the left you know, side of, my, of my, my head. So it knocked me out instantly. And I, then I fell back into the tank and I actually woke up for about one minute before you know, the expansion of my brain ultimately knocked me out for the next 36 days. But I, I, when I went inside, I saw my other team, my my producer and my sound man and my and my uh, shooter that that uh, were down there. They were all fine-ish. Actually, my cameraman Doug Vogt was really badly hit too, but he did not go unconscious at the time. And I turned to them. I said, "Are we still alive?" And and they said, uh, "Yeah, we're alive." And that's the last thing I remembered until I woke up. Uh, you know. In, in March, you know, this was January 29th that was hit. So it was three, 36 days later. So, so it was, um, it was, it was an explosion that kind of ultimately taught me uh, a topic and details that I never would have had any idea what to understand. I did not understand them before. I didn't know what an improvised explosive device was in terms of what it, what it, what happens if you're hit by it. I knew what they were. I just didn't know really what the life was like when you were ultimately wounded in a war. So I, it was a brand new topic that I su su suddenly in an instant became a student in. And uh, it's been now slightly more than 15 years since this happened. I do want to dive into what you lost, but also what you gained from that experience, because you just hinted on it. But I do think that when you went through what far too many soldiers go through, that kind of injury, you gain a, an understanding that only someone who's been through it can, and that's allowed you to shine a light on it, make a connection with them through your foundation, and obviously we'll get to all that, but you, you now understand things in a way that very, very few, thankfully, civilians can. Yeah, you know, there are, there are you know, that's, that's funny you say that, Chris, because there are people that ask me that too, is there's obviously downsides, negative parts of getting hit this, and there are some positive uh, things that can happen in your life that give you a different opportunity because you really have to get off the old path that you were on. It's really hard for everybody that's wounded 
to give in to this and to admit or just face the reality that you cannot do exactly the same thing that you used to be able to do. I had a, I had a, a loss of memory because of this blast on the left side of my brain. I had never lo- I've not lost the opportunity to, to think and understand things. I just can't come up with the words. So in, I, sometimes I said, I wish, I wish I had more of a physical career that I was on, like a, uh, like a surgeon where I could just figure out how to, how to rebuild your knees and things, because I don't really need to know the names of all those joints. <laughs> the, the patients would not like that idea where I'd ask them, you know, what's the name of that knee thing you have there? I can't, but I could physically fix it because I didn't need to have words for it. So I lost my opportunity. So I was really instantly having the, I was a, I was a reporter. I had to go live and report like you, Chris. And I just, I just lost the ability to make sure I got the names right. You know, or to remember the name. I can you came out, you said remembering the names of your kids and your brothers and the states and the presidents, and it just wasn't there, which obviously in its own way is a, is a terrifying new reality. Thankfully, that, that has faded, right? Yeah, that, I mean, this is, it, it's like night and day what, what life was like when I had just woken up. You know, I just couldn't remember the name of two of my four kids. Pretty sad. Um, I could remember other names that... I never to that to this day don't understand why were those ones names that I could remember or words that I could remember and other ones I didn't. But the problem is I didn't have so many um, so many words that I could use to finish my point, and it was just really quite embarrassing in the beginning of that. So I I knew I had to get out of exactly this the kind of reporting I did before, um, but it took me a long time to realize you know I'm not going to anchor world news tonight again. I'm not going to be covering the White House where there's moments where I couldn't remember the name of the vice president. You know, I knew that I couldn't do that because I had a, it's called aphasia, which is the, really the blast to the left part of the, of the head. Um, you know, you can get hit in different angles of your brain. You can get, you know, depression if it's hit on this side. You can hear, you know, you can lose languages and words if you hit on the left side. Uh, you know, there's depression from different, so there's different things about the brain I didn't know about before. And suddenly I knew that I had to change, change my path. Almost miraculous. You survived. You talked about the medical care you received right on the spot. And then at the various hospitals, we become incredibly good at keeping people alive and dealing with the immediate physical trauma and the, the very obvious wounds of war. It's the next level of, of wounds, the ones you don't see, the ones that sneak up on you, the ones that linger for years. That's what, Bob, I think as a nation, we're still grappling with understanding the depth and the scope of that problem and what to do about it. You had a chance to, by your firsthand experience, sort of get a window on that. You know, I, I, with, without, without question, you know, I, I do say that when I went to uh, Bethesda Naval, which part of Walter Reed, down in DC in Berkeley in uh, in uh, in Washington DC that was remarkable advancements in medicine you know they do say a lot and it's true that wars if there are good things is they have developed new kind of treatment and surgery etc for the medical world i mean the the care was amazing for all of us 
for me, who was a civilian right there in the military hospital, surrounded by largely Marines, because this was in Bethesda Naval, which is, you know, as you naval, which the Marines are part of the Navy. Uh, and this was the place that was really concentrating on brain injury as opposed to, you know, amputation and burns, which is a, a specialty in other, other hospitals. Uh, so there I was uh, and getting this amazing treatment. And I also, you know, saw that it wasn't so much really the the doctors and the nurses, they were not giving them quite the same treatment as I got, was coming to a sense of lacking the kind of luck and, and resources that I did. I was, you know, 24 years old at the, 44 years old at the time. I had my family, I had ABC was behind me. I was being so much well supported. And I realized that on that same third floor, Bethesda Naval with you know other unconscious, badly wounded, hit by IED patients like me, and some of them did not have the family surrounding them. In some cases, they had no one there, family members, because they, at that point, did not get the rights and the abilities to keep their jobs and come and visit their, their son or daughter while they're there recovering, almost dead. And then that was really when we realized that something needs to be done. You know, I woke up and, and it took me a long time to realize how badly I was hit. I, I, didn't even re, I didn't even know when I woke up that part of my skull had been removed. It took some time before my family to really want to tell me that news. But I, I woke up and said, wow, I'm back. Everything is miraculous. And that's when I learned that everybody on that floor with me were going to uh, – really descend into major depression because they realize that their lives are not the same. That's another way that you can relate in a way that very few of us can to what the many, many, many thousands of soldiers who come home with the invisible wounds. I mean, you went through, I'm sure, stages of it. You, you've lost, as you said, speech and memory, essential tools to your job. Um, most people would be very angry about that. You have to go through those stages. And then depression, obviously, is a, is a companion to that. What's misunderstood about the Pardon? severity of that and what the struggle that people go through? Yeah, you know, this, this is another thing, like, like I said before, in terms of you compared to some previous wars, we had so much, so much coverage of it that was going on. People saw what these worlds, what these weapons were like and what they're seeing out there. In the, but the other one that was different about this war, completely different one, compared to different ones, is because of the advanced medicine, lives were saved that were not saved in previous wars. In fact, they, I was told that five years earlier, if I'd hit with exactly the same uh, IED and I had the same ability, to, uh, the same kind of treatment once I got in, that I probably would not have survived. They were able to develop things that they never would have, that they didn't really have before. So the, the medical care was, was so good that they were able to save people that would not have been saved before. On top of all of that, that they, uh, they had numbers um, because of these uh, different kite, because they were IED explosions that were hitting, that those were hitting people from the side um, when you're in Iraq and they're hitting you from the underneath when you're in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. because Afghanistan had dirt roads and Iraq had largely pavement roads. 
So the insurgents, they wanted to plant an IED is they put it on the side because they couldn't get it underneath the pavement. In Iraq, they would go underneath. Afghanistan, you go from underneath. So in Iraq, there was a lot of these blasts from the side, which means tons of brain injuries. You know, then in Afghanistan, a lot of amputations because they came from underneath and blew off your arms and, and your legs. So it's kind of interesting to see those that part of the war. But given the fact that some of these wounds, because of the blasts, as opposed to you know bullets and explosions that you know knocked you out, there were, as you said, a lot of invisible wounds, the ones you couldn't really see, and that created problems. Uh, in the sense that no one really knew what to do and they didn't really know what they were. And they knew that some did not want to ever admit that they had something that no one saw because, because it was, it was looked within the military, especially as, as embarrassing. It's like you're being wimpy or something. If you want to say that you're not the same condition as you were, because you can't see anything. I w- it was easy for me to convince people because mine was so obvious. But I knew that there was a lot had kind of these new wounds that didn't exist that much before. So those are physical. And then there's always the the multiple deployments in this war Mm. because it's voluntary military. We have such small numbers of Americans serving and a very big war is going head to head. Iraq and Afghanistan, they had so many deployments that people developed kinds of, of depression and traumatic brain and, and, and brain that too, but also uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress. Let's talk Those more about what's different with these wars because the it's been more than 20 years since the presence in both Iraq and Afghanistan began. Uh, officially, Iraq was nine years, but there's still a presence in Afghanistan stretching towards two decades now. And as you said, it, a lot of it, it's the same soldiers fighting it again and again and going back and forth, which, I mean, I mean, Afghanistan alone is longer than both world wars and the Korean War combined. So what's unique and challenging about the, the problems that they face just because of the sheer length of it? Well, the length of it, they didn't. One, they didn't know when their last deployment was going to be. I mean, they would go one after another after another. Whereas you look at Vietnam, people would do like one deployment because there were so many that were that were drafted. Uh, in this case, they didn't really know a how often they were going to go. Will they have to go again? And then secondly, there was not this, because sometimes I like to compare this to Vietnam because there's almost like the opposite war and the treatment of the military. But back then you'd, you'd go back to Saigon and go party and smoke pot, whatever you're going to do. And then you go back to the war zone and you knew there was separated completely. You know, you knew almost certainly you're not going to get blown up by an IED in downtown Saigon. You know, you go to a different world. And then when you were, it was intense in many ways, more intense because less protected uh, when you're fighting in, in Vietnam. But you, at least you knew where it was in Iraq and Afghanistan. Every day you were vulnerable. Something could have happened. And that created another kind of traumatic, you know, another kind of uh, uh, post-traumatic stress. There wasn't quite the intensity of it back in Vietnam. Vietnam's, you know, that kind of stress was created. The treatment they got when they got home by the military, by the uh, civilian world. You know, that's another huge difference in this and uh, compared to Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan. That's well put. You sort of had the line between friend and foe slightly more clearly drawn there. It, it must be quite fuzzy for those that have fought in these marathon wars in the Middle East because that there is no 
time when you can take a deep breath and relax. And I imagine the psychological toll that will continue to take on all of the of the soldiers who fought there for the rest of their lives. We're going to be dealing with this for a decade just because of the severity of that. And and you, you point out very well, other wars sort of here are we're over here, they're over there, here's the line. And although it's terrifying and violent, it's slightly more clearly drawn and therefore uh doesn't create the same level of anxiety, I would imagine, after the fact. Yeah, but the one one that one that it is the same is that as, they're asymmetrical wars. You know, we we're the ones with all the amazing, you know, weapons and and planes and boats and bullets and IED explosions and you know the the opposition in these wars, the so-called enemies, were the ones that were were hiding and didn't have much, but they would never they would never give up. It was hard to get them to succumb um, because they were they were the ones that were did not have the kind of pressure on them to to win with every battle. They would they were more likely to die and not give up. So they were both asymmetrical wars, all of you know, back in Vietnam and the ones we've got now in Iraq and Afghanistan. So in that sense, they were the same. It was a wake up that these wars it's hard to define what the win is. It doesn't, you don't really understand when it is you could withdraw. You know, World War II was so obvious that there was surrenders. They wrote the document, they signed the paper and says, we now officially lost, the war is over. You know, those days are over. So that added yet more stress, not only to those on the sands, but those back in the Pentagon, because they didn't know really what to do and how long this would last. They're real. It's, it's still there. Your experiences created an awareness, which was a call to action. You and your wife, Lee, is a very gifted author and an and advocate as well, and she's been hand-in-hand hand with you for, for more than three decades now. The Bob Woodruff Foundation does a great job at finding ways to fill in the gaps that big government can't. I know you sometimes think outside the box and, and find ways to serve communities that are underserved and underrepresented. What, what's misunderstood about the most urgent needs for veterans now who come home with either physical wounds, whether it's uh, amputations, dealing with prosthetics, or the invisible wounds? What's, what do we not understand about what the challenges are and, and how to meet them? You know, in the beginning, it was, it was a world that people just didn't know much about. You know, people didn't, civilians, us and my friends, and didn't really know where they were going when they came back from the hospital on the recovery. So in the beginning, we really needed to try to get them anything that the, that the VA and the DOD were not really dealing with because A, they were overwhelmed by the number of wounds that happened. Uh, and secondly, they didn't really think that this, this war would create the kind of wounds that were, in many cases, were invisible. So we knew that we had to help people literally get something set up for them when they went back to the civilian world because they're no longer living on the base. They had to come from uh, the hospital to a home that they had to figure out how to pay for it. They had to figure out how to survive. The, the government was overwhelmed to try to fix that. We knew that there were so many people in the civilian world that wanted to contribute. They wanted to do something. It was just really complicated. Uh, difficult to understand what it is that needed to be done. So in the beginning, it was try to help those who just returned and on recovering from a wound in a brand new world for them. Now the, that's not really the case. You know, the, the, the problem is not to try to open up the local community for those that are suffering, but 
there's other issues that have lasted for from the beginning, which is, you know, certainly depression, because the lives have changed and there's and there's a huge numbers of suicide within the military because the life has changed so quickly. You know, and now with with families, there is, uh, you know, there's there's food insecurity because of what's happening because of COVID. So our foundation this year is concentrating a lot on helping those that, uh, uh, you know, the military, the, the veterans that they need uh, as much help as they can to deal with what that kind of uh, insecurity, food insecurity is because a lot of in case this this in many cases are the Vietnam vets because they're older, mm-hmm. they're living in the nursing homes. The highest number of deaths uh, because of COVID are in the, the nursing homes. And it's it's interesting, Chris, that you know how 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 willing are those veterans to accept and want help from the outside. Sometimes you gotta push them a little bit to take it. You know, they they talk a lot about we don't want pity. Mm. Uh, and they have great dignity, and in some some cases they don't want to admit that they don't have enough food. But it is the case. So the, the percentage of those uh, those that don't, you know, on their own seek for help is lower percentage than it is in the civilian world. We're more likely to do it. You know, again, it's kind of like that machismo thing that people. No, there's a stigma about being wounded in the war if you don't see it, as I said. But it's kind of the same a little bit with uh, insecurity, with you know, feeding your family, no matter what your age is. Nothing more basic than that. When you talk about helping veterans and helping them deal with the, the consequences of war, it, it should be or it seems to be mostly apolitical, but then you have to get the funding. It, the the, uh, the VA, the budget was just increased 12% from last year. It's $243 billion in the new budget, Bob, uh, up, up $26 billion. The, the budget for mental health, $10.3 billion has been earmarked. Sounds like a staggering number. It's about 4%, by my math, of the total budget. And then of that, $312 million, so a much smaller percentage, is directly earmarked to suicide prevention. And what's more important than keeping someone alive? You can't help them if they don't see a reason to live and you can't deal with that immediate crisis. What's your reaction to, to that commitment and, and how does it translate to actual help? Because the numbers do sound pretty staggering, but is that just a fraction of what needs to be done? Does it need to be spent more smartly than it is being spent? Well, it's interesting. Those those two topics you just said is is because those are the ones that have have lasted for a couple decades now. You know, after you know nine eleven, that is still a problem. You know, the the physical kind of assistance, uh, you know, to build new devices so you can walk better if you have amputation or you need to have more surgery for badly burnt. You know, that was finished. You know, years ago, those kinds of wounds are not really happening. But the ones that are not going away is, you know, you know mental health, uh, suicide, depression. And that's why that's getting the biggest in, you know, increase in, in funding from the government, because they know these things have not been solved yet. Despite the fact that the VA has gotten a lot better 
at all of this than it was before because it like i said they were overwhelmed and it was brand new to them but now they've really they've actually done a pretty good job now compared to before to try to help this but they definitely need more people they need more development um, and they need to have the ability to recognize where these problems are happening because not everybody comes forward right away to do it so yes it, in a perfect world chris for all of this put more money in it you know put more attention to it uh, then you can fill yourself with all sorts of politics on this is how much to fund it with but you know we're pushing as much as we can uh, to get somebody to participate in in it if the government's not handling and so we got people a lot of that volunteer their time and people that want to donate some money to try to happen in in the private civilian world of of, uh, of philanthropy we're getting some of that participation by people too so we're getting more but in a purple world we'd get some more. it would be nice to get even more support yeah i mean the, the increase in the va budget in the last 20 years has been up fivefold but the problem continues to just to mushroom and grow there's stats and there's politics bob and then there's just the 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 nitty-gritty the face-to-face Keontae story a marine that we both know who lost part of his right leg in afghanistan and has been a, a, a great athlete at the Paralympics and the Invictus Games. He used to be a spokesman for, for these causes. My conversation with him, he talked about the moment where in the dark days, coming back and adjusting to his new life and wrestling with it the best he can, but, but being depressed and realizing one day as he looked in the mirror that he was abusing his pain medication, that that wasn't who he wanted to be. It wasn't who he was, in his words. So the awareness to realize that, then the strength of will to quit those medications cold turkey and deal with the side effects and deal with the pain. Not everybody has that, but those are the kinds of personal struggles that, that millions go through on a day-to-day basis in front of the mirror. What can you share from your conversations with so many that you stay in touch with about the very personal day-to-day struggles of these folks that, that need to be better addressed? Yeah, you've got to, you've got to find your mission. And you've got to you got to find something that's different than you did before. You know, you have to admit finally that you're not going to go on that same path you had before. So once you can figure out a way that that you can, uh, you know, get an idea of what it is you want to accomplish, and therefore have the ability to move towards it, that is the one that, in some ways, kind of it's the only way really to help your depression and to get yourself out of it. You know, you know, sports is, is one of them. That's why you said, Keontae, he's, he's like an amazing athlete. And the last time I saw him personally was out at, uh, at one of the Invictus games where he, of course, was winning because he's an amazing sport athlete to be in with and to do it without a leg. I mean, that's, I mean, what can you do? You know, what can you say? <laughs> it's just, the thing is he actually wasn't a great athlete before. I put that down to just strength of will, man. And, and balls, because he wasn't like a track athlete before his injury. He just decided, this is going to be something for me that's going to save my, my sanity, maybe save my life. And so I'm going to pour myself into it and work hard. And it, winning races was something new to him. He wasn't like he was an athlete before this happened. He just found something and then dove into it. And he ran marathons without ever training for more than five miles at a time. Just He just gutted it out. Not, no, not, not, not advised, but he did it. You don't, you don't have to get blown up, hit by a bomb in, in one of the wars to know, what, you know how big sports is. It, it's to you. It's to me. I mean, I played sports my entire life. And, 
you know, and what I didn't really understand before was what the impact of, of sports are on, on your brain too. So it's mine, you know, Keontes, his, his is physical, his with, you know, he's, he's an amputee, uh, sports is crucial to him to just to prove that he can still do it. He doesn't need all these legs, right. To, to do a sport. And, and by the way, we can use all sorts of humor with each other. I got that right now. I can, we make <laughs> jokes about each other all the time, but so he's got that. And maybe, maybe you ought to be an amputee too, Chris, maybe you can be even faster than you were before. Uh, anyway, so here's this physical one. What I didn't really know was the impact of sports style on your, on your brain. I think we, maybe you all, I mean, you know it too, because you're in the, in the world of it. Um, but I just didn't realize how crucial that is to develop and maintain the health of your brain. I remember I did a, uh, I did a, uh, participated in an event out in Stanford where I had a bunch of doctors in the university, uh, in the, in this stadium there. And we all talked about dramatic brain injury and, and how to make it get with a, the recovery and the you know neurosurgeon neurologist would were there to give advice to people so one of the questions from the when the stands were give me the three most important ways to improve the intensity and health of your brain and he said well there's three ways to do it exercise 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 you know that blood flowing through your head is the ones that have an impact on it and so no matter even if you have traumatic brain injury or nothing, you know that getting that flowing through your head has got the most uh, most influence over, over over your mental health. You've talked about other things too. The power of laughter, humor is essential. The power of music, you believe in that. Those are two other topics of podcasts because they do have an amazing ability to to connect in our brains and make us more resilient and and take the focus sometimes where it needs to be and, and help ease the pain. So anything at our disposal that, that you've got, I know is essential to help folks get through with what they have to get through. Yeah. And in any, any way, I mean, listen, family and friends are just absolutely, uh, that's the other one. You've got to have that and engage with other people. I mean, one of the ones that really launches people or, or makes them, forces them downward into the world of depression uh, and, and all sorts of kinds of, of, of other problems too is isolation. If there's any way that you can find a way to interact with people, which is, you know, what COVID has completely destroyed a lot of this because people can't go in the offices. They can't even come in contact with people. And even if you do, you got to have a mask on or everyone's worried about getting something. So that has really accelerated. this. Is that, is that actually hit veterans and even, even harder because of that, because of the intense need to have that, the comradeship that was a big part of their service that was the part of the intensity of the experiences what helped them get through every day while in combat and while at home and now a lot of that is taken away bob because of the world at least temporarily the world we're living in right now yeah this is well before covid chris i mean this was you know you if you if, if you go and you're you're at war you wake up in the morning with the same people you go to bed with at night, you know, or to go in the same place to sleep, but not necessarily to bed. But then you go to bed surrounded by the same people next day, the same thing. So one of the biggest problems, um, whether you're wounded or not, when you come back from serving there for 13 months in Iraq or Afghanistan, you come back, 
and you get a completely different team of people that you're with. And it's a much larger, more wide collection of people that you don't have that tight, tight relationship, having lived through the same things an intensity that you somehow survived and came through. You don't have that kind of relationship that's quite as, you know, healthy as, as it was over there. Isn't that, it's, it's interesting, right? You go and you serve in the war and you got things that make your life so much better when you're there compared to when you come back and spend time in peace because the thing changed so, so much. And you put all that now, force that into the crisis we're going through in our country right now with COVID, you're even more isolated with more bad news and pressing things every day that, you know, that is, yes, that's, that's, that's hurt. Perhaps those that were wounded in Iraq and Afghanistan because they had already gone through it. I just want to make sure that people know, though, too, when I talk about the wounded in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, this is, you know, one one quarter maybe of those who serve that have gone through something like this. You know, most of them have come back, you know, healthy. You know, and, and the last thing they want to think is that we all think that uh, they were at a war and they're wounded and they're, they're not, you know, able to do the same as they did before. I just want to make sure that that's that that's clear but those that did have something that happened over there it's been really double a double whammy for the majority who come back healthy physically i still think it's important to keep an eye on them and make sure that their needs are being met because although they don't want pity they don't feel they need help these are still tough things they've gone through and you don't you can't fully appreciate perhaps the echoes and what the what the repercussions are of that. And we need to be, I think, as a society aware of that and attentive to that because they may have come back able-bodied and not believe they, quote, need help because there's still a stigma to reaching out for that, especially when you come from a culture where you're supposed to be um, strong and, and sturdy. But I think we need to keep an eye on that as well because we don't maybe fully appreciate at the moment how long this is going to last and how many people it's going to touch. Yeah, listen, I mean, re respect and congratulations and all of that are, are really good for, for everybody. But yeah, I mean, I guess the, just don't don't assume that there's something, you know, some mental sure. issue that they had or physical thing that's, you know, that's invisible. But yes, I think, yes, we make sure you look because this is one, again, that they don't want to come back and admit. So if you do notice something, then try to do whatever you can to convince them to seek some help or, or that. Uh, but I do talk to a lot of veterans and they love it when people you know, raise the flags and say thank you for serving our country and giving them the ability to get on the plane before the rest and all that but some also say well you know what just let us kind of just just kind of go into this different world civilian world that we're now back at you know i'm not sure we i couldn't even tell you the percentage who love that and those who don't really want that. What they really want is they want to get the job. They want a job. You know, they want to have their life better and not just somebody shouting out and say, you know, you served. Thank you so much, but I'm not going to do anything more than that. And I'm not going to do anything else to help you. Uh, the big thing is not just to say or to show how much you love them. It's really more about doing something, you know, behind the curtain to do something for them. Amen. Perfectly said. I've said that often. For people who do want to help but don't know how, 
Um, first of all, I would urge you to look into the Bob Woodruff Foundation because you do some of the work for people. You do a lot of investigating and vetting and, and looking at the organizations that are not scams because I know those exist out there. The ones that are doing specific good work and have a track record of doing so. What have you found in terms of the climate? Because so many people are stretched and challenged by the times and, and sometimes raising funds for cause, no matter how worthy, can be really difficult at this time. Are there still enough people who want to help and, and what, what should they do uh, to take those steps to, to back up what they're saying with actual deeds? Yeah, I mean, people in your neighborhood, you, you probably, you'll, the ones that you know the most, you'll know what to do for them if they, if they you know, seek some kind of help for it. But if you want to do some help that's not in your, in your backyard, you need to find the organizations, whether it's within the government or with its one in a, in a, in a private entity that's doing something, then, then it's a little bit more complicated, which is really what we did. We, that's what we created. We, we are raising money as much as we can. And then we have an amazing team that will identify and locate the groups and the and the and the, the the abilities to help people the most efficient way. You know, almost like the most you'll get out of your dollar percentage-wise, the will, will, everything you're going to give essentially will go to the organizations that are the best. So some some have really just asked us to do that for them. You know, the NFL, for example. You know, they've had so many people, so many organizations asking them for donations to help. Um, there's a point where they just kind of said, you know, this is a world that we don't really understand the best place to put them. So they came to us as their ones that would be uh, in, in charge of finding where that money should go. So people donate to the NFL. So they know that it's now going with a professional team that will find a good place that's incredibly flattering. It's a, it's a testament to the work you've done. The NFL would, would trust you with that and say, help us help people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know other governments have done the same. Other countries that want to donate. I mean, Qatar, who's got the largest U.S. base uh, in all of the Middle East, you know, in the country of Qatar, and they want to do a lot for the veterans, and they wanted to donate, you know, millions of dollars, and they just came straight to us to do that. So we got people that want – we have confidence from other people – to do it, but that's really what people want to do. They want to make sure that their that their desire is met, that their money is going to the right place, that they really are accomplishing something, and that's why we have these people to do it. But I have to say, my wife, my wife and I uh, make sure that people know that we do not make that decision at all where this money goes. You know, we have uh, we are the angels, and then we got the devils who are the ones that say, yeah, I'm sorry, we can't fund that one, you know. So we have applications in. So if you want some money, then uh, some donations, you know, come to us, put all this information together and apply for it. And those that don't get it, some of them are friends of ours that we met. And they ask, oh, can I, can't you guys you know, approve us? No. We are the angels, true. But Lee and I, we do not make any of these decisions. <laughs> so don't blame us for it. Well, the foundation is certainly um, an outgrowth of, your experiences, the file, that one instant in Iraq and, and uh, put your life on a course that you never would have imagined. So much is focused on, rightfully so, what is lost, what is lost in war as a nation, what is lost among individuals. Obviously, a loss can be a part of a limb. It can be um, mental, emotional. What was gained for you? Other than this, the foundation and the awareness of here's how to help. What what did what came out of that that moment and the aftermath 
that changed you as a person that you can say in the, in the gain-loss column, that was something that came out of this for me that I never would have expected? You know, I think I've, uh, there's, there's several things. Is, you know, one is I don't think I have the same fear of death that I did before. In some ways, I kind of already lived through it. You know, I don't remember anything at all from when I was out, but I did when I woke up. My my brother Jimmy came into the room. He's one of the first guys that I saw when I when I woke up, and he asked me, "Wow, it's great to have you back." I wasn't. And I said, "Well, all I really remember was, you know, when I was hit, my body was you know floating below me, and I looked down and saw it. And while I was unconscious, what I do remember right now is just kind of like." whiteness and there was no pain and in some ways i said to him i said jimmy i i uh in some ways i i would be okay just going back where i was you know in some ways it was not as complicated as it is now now that's not a, like a near-death experience but it's certainly one that i realized that it's not really that bad so that that is kind of a positive thing to it all the second one's kind of an interesting story that my little, my little daughter, Nora, I've got twin adorable little girls and they were five years old when I was hit and about, you know, six months after I came back, still had all of these, you know, wounds all over my body and I couldn't remember a lot of things. Um, and she, my daughter asked me, uh, she asked, she was talking to my wife Lee and she says, mom, you know, uh, dad's head seems to have that because they cut off part of my skull. He's, you've got that dented head. And mom says, don't worry, that's, they're going to put that skull back on. It'll be fun. And mom, he's got all of these scars all over his back. Don't worry, sweet, that'll get better. And my dad's got all these little pieces of metal and rocks you know, in, in, implanted in the left part of his jaw. And she, she says, don't worry, those popping out one at a time, that's going to be fine. And she said, you know, mom, no, the, I think my dad loves me even more than he did before. Now, whether that was an expression of it, um, maybe it indicated something. I felt so lucky to be alive. So that was a positive part, I think. I think maybe in some ways, maybe I did change personality-wise. I don't know. I, uh, I'm sure there's always with depression, there's all sorts of snaps that happen. This is not a kumbaya story, but there are some things that maybe are better about me. I also, because I've got uh, traumatic brain injury, you know, neuro neurological, that I actually passed the test for the uh, qualification to go ahead and get my, my uh, vaccine shot the other day. So, you know, I was able to get on, the, even though I'm not even, I'm only 59 and a half, so I didn't even pass otherwise. So right, there you go. I could use that for now to get my vaccine. Well, it's certainly a deepened sense of gratitude, whether that's loving more fully or just appreciating every breath more deeply uh, is a positive offshoot. It's not a kumbaya story for so many. There's so many serious day-to-day -day challenges, but deepening a sense of gratitude is something that come out of it that can have a positive effect in, on people's lives and in many, many ways. You continue to do very uh, important reporting. You always bring great humanity to these causes. And I say causes because these are very, very big stories, usually involving people that are uh, being abused or taken advantage of or, or slaughtered. And um, very much appreciate the work you continue to do in that area. Uh, Chris, you know, I, you know listen, I, I've, I've never been so satisfied with what we've done with the foundation that we've got. I mean, I'm not going to 
I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to surrender, as Churchill once said. That's for sure. This is going to go on. I mean, listen, in a perfect world, we won't need the foundation because everything's going to be fine. But the scary thing is I think we will have more battles in the, in the future, whatever they may be, whether it's ever the asymmetrical wars and bombs and who knows, maybe even some kind of uh, you know, COVID number two. But we're going to always have something where people in our country are going to serve intensely and there will be an impact on them that may be negative. So I think the country always wants to make sure that that we will help those because this is not a uh, you know a draft war. You know, you're not forced to participate in the military. It's your decision to do it. And it means that we don't be forced to do it ourselves or, or really now at our age that's our, our children and grandchildren do not have to go to the war if the war set up uh, system continues where it's all voluntary war, uh, military. So we just always want to do something people that serve. It's interesting right now, those that are on the front lines of the new kind of war, the invisible war of, of, uh, of COVID, you know, those are the ones that are now serving our war, you know, and we are people, people in America, in America, I think we've now become that way. We, we want to help those that are doing so much for those that we need, that we want, that we love, that are suffering through something, in this case, those that are in the hospitals. And they are taking the risk. You know, they're the ones hitting, are being hit by an invisible coronavirus, which is the new kind of IED. So I just want everybody to know that there's something that everybody can do for those that have served. It, it was much more intensely for the military from the sands of Iraq and Afghanistan. And now it's continues to do that for the long, long-term in, you know, damage that it's caused. But now there's new ones. And so it's never, there's nothing, there's no reason we will ever give up because we're kind of a connection between what people want to do something and those that need something. And that there's nothing that feels better than that. And wonderfully put. I think America is a grateful nation, a big hearted nation, but making sure that the awareness and the attention span match that, I think is important because you're right, there will not be an end to conflicts or problems and we well, just that's, have that's another motivation. It. I think it's a motivation for Americans to do something for them, because there's a point where this system may not continue anymore. If it looks like we're not going to really treat them with dignity, those that do volunteer to take the risks, whether it's in the hospital or it's in the sands of the war. You know, if we if that doesn't happen, if we just stop supporting those that are still have needs after serving, then maybe the next system will be a draft again. You know, then we will. People are not going to want to volunteer, and therefore we're going to have to make your grandchild do it instead. You know, even though he doesn't want to or doesn't have the ability to do so. So I think there's a there's a motivation to, to continue to do something for the for the military if you can. I love hearing that your foundation will never give up or surrender. I appreciate <laughs> the. Uh, I'm grateful for your time, for your your example, for your expertise, and and, and for sharing your story and what others can do to help, Bob. Thanks so much. Well, it's great to see you, Chris. And maybe we'll be out there and uh, side by side, you know, to do some more reporting about the veterans like you and I did a few years ago. Keep an eye out. The Warrior Games for Adaptive Sports Athletes, sponsored by the Department of Defense, return in September at Disney's Wide World of Sports in Orlando. Our hope is that the episodes with Bob and Keontae's story have deepened your understanding. Maybe you're as inspired by their examples as I am. In their time of greatest danger and difficulty, both of them put others first. And with the help of others, 
became stronger, stayed active, kept moving forward, not just surviving, but thriving. For more, I really recommend the book co-written by Bob and his talented wife, Lee, In an Instant, A Family's Journey of Love and Healing. Also, I should learn more about the Bob Woodruff Foundation. They do tremendous work. Thanks, as always, to my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, producer Jason Weichelt. And thanks to you for listening. We invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, and leave any input or comments on my Instagram at Chris Fowler. I'll talk to you soon.